If you'd open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, we have ushers coming down front who have Bibles. And if you don't have one, we would love to make sure you have one. And so if you'd lift your hand up, they'll see you and make sure that you get one. In, the, in this Bible we're giving you, it's page 656 or something like that. Um, so uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, we're dealing with some very, very interesting practical stuff in our discussion in 1 Peter. Um, it's so practical, by the way, that it's going to be very uncomfortable. <laughs> and uh, whenever there's uncomfortable sermons, and that doesn't mean they're not all somewhat uncomfortable, um, I'm absolutely convinced we've got to ask the Holy Spirit to do most of the talking. So we're going to stop right now, and we're going to pray. We're going to pray, first of all, that our hearts would be receptive, that the Holy Spirit would do His convicting, and that we would do the walking, that we'd leave here responding to truth instead of just hearing and adding to our collection of knowledge. That isn't what this is about. So because we're the church, we're the bride of Christ, we want to live like that, so let's pray. Let's pray for help. God, you are awesome in your glory and in your power, in your salvation, in your mercy, in your grace. And you're awesome in how precise you are to deal with human hearts. You get really practical with us and how we see life and how you want us to see life through your son, Jesus. So God, we pray right now for every man, woman, and child in this room, in the chapel, and over in the conference center this morning that you would not um, let us be indifferent about what we hear. God, that where your Holy Spirit would convict, just do it. Press on us. And where we are convicted to obey, God, reveal to us the specifics of that as well. God, I pray for this passage. I pray that, um, that I'm submissive to you and that you would speak clearly through it and uh, do your work, God. Let you get all the glory, honor, and praise, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Question to start with, what difference has Christ made in your life? Not a, not a trick question, and I know this is not the place to raise your hand and offer an answer, but I want it to kind of sit in there a little bit, you know? Um, what difference does it be, mean to be a Christian? And I think there's two angles that people typically, like classically, respond to. One is, one is the, the, the big win, I suppose, would be no longer am I outside as a sinner, uh, under the consequence and judgment of God for my sin and failure, I've been brought inside. And so some of the ramifications of that are that I have a future. I have an eternity. I no longer have to see hell as the God judgment for my rebellion. I see mercy and grace and a place for eternity called heaven, right? That's some, some people, that's the difference Christ has made in my life. But there's a little bit of problem with limiting our discussion to that because it sounds more like fire insurance than Christianity, like, I don't have to suffer hell, I get heaven. That is true, but that's not all of it. The other side of how you answer the question, what difference does Christ make in your life, what does it mean to be a Christian, is that it's a practical thing. Does he affect how you serve? Does he affect how you spend your money? Does, does he affect where you go and don't go on the internet? Does he affect how you love the enemy, even if they live in your house? 
affect your husband and your wife relationship? Does it affect how you treat others? And ultimately, what Peter has been stressing on us for this, this time we've been in it is, does he affect how you suffer? You see what I'm saying about when, when the Holy Spirit wants to say something to you, every one of us are caught red-handed somewhere. We got, we got things that don't belong to us in our pockets, right? We, you got me. Because I, I do that, and I think that way, and I go to that place, and I spend my money on that, and I'm addicted to this, and I don't submit to that. And so the question that I think Peter is just pressing on the church in this letter is, there's a difference. Christ makes a difference. Agreed? Right, so I was kind of punking around on the internet this week and I found a George Barna research survey. I'm not going to give you the stats because I don't even know if I believe them. Either way, it's a good way to start this conversation. He did a comparison between those who confess Christ or say, that might be a little bit too precise, people who call themselves Christians and people who say, no, I'm not a Christian, right? So he did a, he did a survey and, and trying to discern how are the, what are the differences Does Christ make a difference in your life? So he's basically dealing with this question I'm asking. His conclusion after research was that Christianity made no discernible difference. People had the same divorce rates. People had the same issues with addictions and pornography. People had the same uh, uh, disobedient issues. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't buy it. And I'll tell you why. Um, Because Jesus is not only Savior, he is Lord. He doesn't save anybody. He doesn't save anybody if he's not also Lord over. Now, I know the survey, what it was, you know, perusing. It was taking anybody who says, I'm cool with Christ. And and to be honest with you, we live in a country that's cool with Jesus. I mean, for the most part. I think it's like 78% would use the term Christian as a tag to call themselves, like I went to that church sometime, or if I had to go to church, that's where I'd go. So they use that. So I know it's not that precise, but, but there's no way his conclusion is that Christ doesn't make a difference. There's no way that's true. So the transforming work of God, God's spirit doesn't just open our eyes to receive the gospel. It opens our lives to live the gospel. Would you agree that? That's what it does. We use a word, it's a churchy word, it's a, it's a theology word, it's called sanctification. The word just means uh, made to be holy, set apart to be holy. And, and the process of sanctification is that once God opens our eyes, once the lights come on and we love him, from that moment on until glory someday, God is transforming me moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, every step along the way I look more like Jesus. Not perfect, because I still live in this body of sin and death. This thing right here is in the way of my heart. This thing is in the way of my mind. The part that God has transformed already and made a lover of him, the body wants to resist it. It wants to experience pleasure, and it wants to experience justice, and it wants to experience vengeance, and on and on and on it goes, right? But he is making me new. So Christian, if... if You look at your life and go, well, I've been a Christian for 10 minutes. I've been a Christian for 10 weeks, 10 years, 10 decades. I don't care how old you are, where you are in the story. You ought to be able to look back in your life and go, yep, made a difference. Agreed? Made a difference. Not in perfection, but he's making us new. Giving us the power to say no to sin and ungodliness, and and that's the deal. But there is a problem. If, If these people who call themselves Christians 
see no difference, then you know the conclusion. They're not. It's a spiritual impossibility. But there are some Christians caught up in that survey, right, who are living what I would call an add-on theology, an add-on Christianity, meaning they came to Christ, and in the crowded mess of their life, they stick him on one of the many shelves. Like, Jesus is in there. He plays a role in there. In fact, he's part of the big collage that I have going on in my life, but he isn't it. And so people don't end up looking, Christians don't end up looking too much different than the world because, after all, he fits in the mess. But here's the, here's the gospel, though, church. The gospel says he's everything. In spite of how you feel today or in spite of what you failed at yesterday, he's everything. And Christians get up confessing every day he's everything. He's more than life. He's more than wife. He's more than home. He's more than job. He's more than happiness. He's everything. Now, I know it's hard, and I know we don't win them all. But if we don't believe that, if we're walking around with this add-on theology, like, okay, I'm cool to be cool with Jesus. And I got to tell you something. I, 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 wonder, I wonder what dent you're going to make for the king. And more than, more than likely, you won't make a dent for the king. And that, to be honest, the essence of 1 Peter is talking to a church who has every reason to tap on, on all these subjects. The pressure is too great. For them, they could live like anybody else or, or react totally humanistic to their circumstances and no one would find fault. And yet Peter keeps pushing at Christ in you making a difference. So you see why I started out saying, well, we're going to need help for this one. Because the Holy Spirit's coming today, people. He's coming to confront us. And he's going to confront American values. He's going to confront, like, human passions. So Jesus said in John chapter 10, for those of you who wonder if Jesus is just an add-on piece, Jesus says, um, I've come to give life. And he describes it like this, life to the fullest, or an abundant life. Let me use a word, and it's used too much, but let's just use it because it's the right word for this. Jesus came to give Christians a radical life. The whole world and all of its weight are going this way. Christ in us makes us stand out radically. We love different things. We do different things. We care about different things, right? We don't love certain things. A radical Christian life. Radical Christianity, radical Christians make a difference. So you go back to the first question, what difference does Christ make in your life? Well, if it's a radical faith, if Jesus was the revolutionary to dive into time and space and deal with man's issues, and he liberates us to live for something greater than what we see, feel, touch, and have, well then, there's radical people living differently. Would you agree? So today's another building block in that process together of real faith, real believers, radical faith. And let me just give you context again, um, and it's really hard to put us there, but this church is a suffering church. In fact, Peter starts out the whole thing, to the scattered suffering exiles dispersed everywhere. And the reason why they're scattered and dispersed is because of persecution. And it's not just random, it's very targeted. Jesus in you is what the world hates 
We hate how you live and how you talk and what you do and what you spend your money on. And so pressure. And so Peter writes to the scattered church and he says, listen, guys, hang on to the doctrine, the truth that you've been born again into a living hope. One that won't spoil, perish, or fade. And by the way, when you feel like all the breaks are against you in your faith, know this, that God is standing guard over it. You can't lose it. You can't fail. You're not going to tap. You won't end up someday, some moment in time going, oh, I guess it wasn't real. It's impossible. Because God who gave you and granted you the faith is the one sustaining your faith and guarding over it. It will deliver. So if I'm a suffering Christian, right, in the early church, and they want to kill me because of Christ, I might have moments where I go, I wonder if this thing is going to last. I wonder. Some days I feel like going, oh, not me, not today. I don't love Jesus. And, and Peter promises them, reminds them of this truth of God-given, sovereign, ordained before the foundations of the world's salvation that wasn't earned, therefore can't be lost because it's anchored in the permanent faithful character of God. That's the truth. Everything else, church, flows out of that reality. That's a reality bigger than the one I can see. It's more, it's more crystal than people's pushback on me or in me. So, Peter says a couple of therefores because of that theology. He says, so be holy and don't go backwards. Look at chapter 1, verse 14, if you would, for a second. After Peter reminds them of this wonderful truth, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Isn't that what it's like? When, when difficulty happens, we have a tendency to react with our past more than our present and future. We go backwards and Peter says, don't go backwards. Don't act stupid. Don't go back to what you used to be because God has done so much to make you different now. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago. So it all starts with this idea of identity. Get your identity and live your identity. You do those two things. Like First, uh, first Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a people belonging to God. You're the possession of God. Live in that reality because it's more certain than the persecution. You live in that reality, then, then uh, God's going to do some amazing things, amazing things in your life, radical things in your life. So that's where we've been, and we stopped in verse 11 and 12. And if, I'm giving, if you've been here just a short period of time or you've missed some of the series, let me just give you the big outline. Chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, is all about who we are in Christ and what God has provided. It's all doctrine, theology, truth, okay? Verse 11, verse 11 and 12 is this pivotal key part of the passage. Everything after verse 11 and 12 is the practical outworking of that reality. Get it? So two sides. All the absolute certainty of Christ and what he's done and finished, why it changes me, and how it changes me. Get it? So if you just want to run around with a great outline of Peter, you've got it. That's all that it is. A real simple truth, that, that amazing truth that delivers us to different people. Let me read 11 and 12 just to remind you of what it says, and we'll move on from there. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or as the NIV says, live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. That's the pivotal moment. The reality of what Christ has done has brought us to this place where we can live different lives. So 
that they would glorify God. And Peter goes, now let me get specific. Let's get practical and talk about different lives. Live it out like this. Real scenarios. Real scenarios about real faith that isn't just add-on Christianity. What I'm about to talk to you concerning proves to you you just can't add a little bit of Jesus to your story. Because he doesn't want just a little bit. He wants it all. So here's the first subject. He talks about submission. Ouch. That's an American dirty word, isn't it? Nobody likes submission. I mean, I don't know if it's unique to America, but clearly in our world who is just driven by rights. Everyone's got rights. Everyone's got 20 rights. Everybody's fighting for their rights, suing for their rights, leaving for their rights. Everyone's rights, rights, rights. And Peter jumps right into the practical outworking of a theology that God does the work in you. He says, let's try this first one on for size. How about submission? And last week we talked about submission to governing authorities. Perfect timing, to be honest with you, right? In our world, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm going to confess, I don't like politics, I don't like looking at it. I don't like listening to it. I don't, I don't like it. Do I care about our country? Absolutely. Am I opinionated? Of course I am. <laughs> but in my mind, this is all I think. There is nobody, nobody, I don't care who it is, that's getting in office if God didn't want him in. That doesn't mean I'm irresponsible. It doesn't mean I don't care. It doesn't mean I don't know. It doesn't mean I don't vote. It just means I have total peace that God's the king. I do. I don't care how it works out. I'm going to be fine no matter what. So um, I can look at governing authorities and go, okay, God, I can submit to that. I mean, they carry badges and guns and stuff. It's easy to submit to people who are toting weapons. But he moves on, and he says, submit to your employer. And I'm going to prove that to you. And, and by the way, let me just take a, a second to describe the difficulty of Peter's instructions. Peter deals with three topics of submission, governing authorities, employees to employers, and wives to husbands, and not in a, a best-case scenario. Now, just to remind you of the culture and the moment that Peter is writing, he's writing to a group of people who are suffering in the climate of Emperor Nero. Do you know what Nero did to Christians? He would dip them in wax and shove them on poles and light his gardens at night with people. He would use their lives as entertainment and have them killed and slaughtered for fun. And on and on it goes. So it's not like he says, America, submit to your president. Fairly tame instruction. He says to the early church, submit to a guy like Nero. Difficult submission. He gets to this issue of slaves to masters, and these are abusive employers. They hit you. Then he gets to wives and says, and to disobedient husbands. I didn't write this, church. The Holy Spirit did. And the pressure's on because he doesn't have, after these verses, the exception clauses. He puts us in the worst case scenarios and says, that's in the environment God wants you to submit. Tall order, huge, huge order for us to deal with. And it's the radical part of Christian life. Because if it was easy, it wouldn't be radical. If, if the government did everything I wanted, it wouldn't be called submission. Nor would it be submission if I got everything I wanted from my husband or everything I wanted from my employer or everything just went my way. I wouldn't need to tap into submission. It would be cooperation. It would be relationship. Use another word, but it wouldn't be submission. Submission is the hard work. So I want you to kind of sit 
in that sandbox for a little while. Because that's exactly what Peter's trying to say, and he hasn't, he hasn't let up at all. So, first of all, let's look at the passage. Let's pick it apart and uh, see what God has to say to us. Let's read from verse 18 to verse 25 of chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. So first of all, let's deal with this issue of slaves. You might look at this and go, well, how in, how in the world does this have anything to do with my job or my employer at all? Well, it's how you understand this issue of slaves. Most of us, when we think of slaves or the topic of slaves, our mind goes right back to the Civil War era and, and, and that type of imprisoned and persecuted slavery. Uh, and there are two different words used for slave or servant in the text. The first one is, is that one. It's doulos. It's the bond servant. It's someone who belongs to someone else. So when you classically think slave, when, you, when Jesus uses the example of slavery to be enslaved to Christ, it's talking about that doulos, that bond servant. This is a different word totally. This, this word servant is used to describe a household servant. This is a servant that... Um, domestic and, and could secure his freedom or her freedom over a period of time with money. So a perfect uh, illustration would be like if you said, well, I want, to, I want to get a college education. I don't want to have to pay for it. I want a good education. So you join the military. And as soon as you join the military, you've got a four-year tour that you've got to commit to. You've, you can't just leave. You can't just tap out. You can't quit. They call that breaking the law. You go AWOL. But you work your four years or whatever your term is, and you get out, and they, you have your freedom. You do what you want. You go to school. That's exactly the idea of this type of servant. These servants were more common in Peter's day than the doulos servant. Get it? So they were everywhere, people who were securing their life and their future and their freedom by just working off types of things. So the closest parallel we have in our day is the working man. People that have jobs and work for others. So with that in mind, let's work through Peter's instructions to us. The first thing he says in verse 18 is servants, or let's just paraphrase it, employees, be subject to your employers with all respect. Be submissive to your employer with all respect. Let me deal with two words in this thing. The first one is the dirty word. It's submission. Um, this means to place under in order and fashion. It's a, a present uh, tense in the verb, which means ongoing, every day, never stop submission. So this is not like having a good day, submission. This isn't two weeks ago Thursday when everything wanted to strike back and you didn't and you were cool, so you're submitting. It's not that. Peter is talking about an ongoing, every day, under the weight of persecution, submission to your employer, habitual. Here's the kind. Uh, he adds this word. 
Now, you may be able to do the first. Like, you, you could be just one of those people that are so self-controlled and so disciplined that you can walk into an environment and just muster your way through it. But this qualifying word is where we get stuck, and that is this word in verse 18, with all respect. Now it's hard. Now it's much more difficult. Um, that word means fear. It means honor. It means reverence. It's, look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It's the same word here. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time through the exile. So obviously, fearing God seems to be a more clear, easy way, uh, thing to do than fearing an employer, but he uses the same word. Let me read for you another verse um, you're probably familiar with. We'll come back to it. In Colossians, Paul writes to the church in Colossae in chapter 3, um, again talking about submission as the theme. He says, slaves... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So we've got this condition. We are called to, the specific command is called to submit with respect to your employer. So let, let's go on and talk about maybe, maybe some more uh, conditions to it in verse the end of verse 18, he, he, apart from this the idea of respect, he now puts it to the place of almost impossibility. Look at verse 18. Not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. The word unjust means crooked. It means bent. The word means warped. <laughs> it means jerk. Have one of those as a boss? Ever had one as a boss? If you've worked long enough, you have. Peter says, not just when it's easy, not just when um, they treat you well and they pay you for everything. In fact, they overpay you. Not just when that happens, but when they're crooked and warped and bent. I want you to submit with respect. Now, this is the part of the service where you are just checked out. Uh, you've wandered off in your mind looking for the loopholes in God's instructions. Like, where is the places and times where I don't have to submit to the jerk? Fair? Are you ashamed to admit it? That's how I look at it. There's got to be exceptions here. Come on, for real? That, that we can just submit with respect to those who are unjust to us? I got, a long time ago, I worked as a, I told you this before, as a, a laborer in a construction company. And... Uh, Construction company's boss was okay, um, but he was an older guy who had his son working for him, and his son wasn't okay. So I would go to job sites with the son, and I swear he was born with half a brain. It, he, he, just, he just did not have a clue what he was doing, one. That's not so bad, but he would brutalize all the employees. Now, I, I look back at that and, and think, well, could I respect him and submit to him? Maybe I could submit because you're afraid of losing your paycheck. Different motive than what Peter implies here. But respect, you know, respect happens in here. That's a whole different matter. And, and I, I want to leave this where the Holy Spirit leaves it. You know, when the Holy Spirit in his wisdom was giving these words to Peter, if he wanted us to feel a little liberty at this moment to go, and, and don't forget, Somewhere it's going to go really bad, and I understand if it goes bad, and when you lose your temper, it's cool. He didn't do that. 
He keeps the pressure on. He doesn't give us any relief. He just says it. He says it and leaves us in this tension of, oh my gosh, a, a crooked, wicked, jerk of a boss I'm called to respect and submit to. Now, because I've done this long enough, everyone's going to come up to me and ask me for the exception, so I'll just give you the exception. There's only one. God is the king. So if, the, if your employer ever asks you to do something God forbids or forbids you to do something God commands, that's the exception. We serve one king ultimately, but all authority is God's authority, and so we line up under all the other times. So that's the command. That's the difficulty of it. Here's the motivation of it in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering, while suffering injustice or unjustly. The NIV uses the word for gracious. It uses the word commendable. And I, I like the way that reads a little bit better, that it's a commendable thing to suffer well for God's sake. So if you're looking at an ESV or one I'm reading out of, you know, the, the, the phrase is mindful of God. Well, you can just kind of rethink it, like for God's sake. There's a reason. There's a reason why I do this, the motivation that drives me. One is that there's, there's a, it's a gracious thing, and there's always two sides to grace. There's the grace that, we, that is given and the grace that's received. Grace given is that when we wake up every day in a very difficult circumstance with a job we don't like or a, a, a boss that's abusive or whatever, God gives grace for the time of need. He always does. I mean, to be able to turn your cheek or to survive or endure well-suffering has to come from God. And so there's grace provided for that. Now, he doesn't hand you like six packs of grace. They're not in the fridge, so every day you know you got plenty. You're going to be okay. You're convinced at the end of the day you won't be okay the next day, and God shows up the next day and provides more grace every day. So there's a grace that's given. The grace received is this idea here of commendable, that, that there's a... There's a joy, a gratifact, being gratified and, and having pleasure in submitting to difficult authority. It's a gracious thing. So Christian, look at this. So you're in a bad situation and you endure well with all respect. Peter says, what God does, will give you this joy unspeakable and inexpressible full of glory. It's, it's happened to me a couple times where I feel like injustice is going on and I don't act the way I would act. Well, that's a win. And I don't take the win. The Holy Spirit takes the win. Like, without you, Jesus, that would have not gone that well. Somebody would be hurting right now. But he transforms us, and there's a gracious thing that he does. And our motivation is we're, we're, it's for God's sake that we do it, mindful of God. So just to remind you, we don't, we don't do what we do. We don't work where we work. We don't serve like we serve um, because of fear of man nor that we would lose our job, nor because we need money or to provide for our families. Christians are liberated from having to take care of ourselves. Now, cut me some slack here. We work, and we work hard, and we plan, and we steward. We do those things. But the big picture is that we have a provider, right? The big picture, the treasure principle, as Randy Elkhorn would say, is we don't store up here on earth. Why? It, yeah, it's temporary, Moth will eat it, rust will destroy it, you can't take it with you. It's a stupid principle to, to make your security here. Make your security in him, and you can take it with you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't work. It doesn't mean you don't have a savings account. It doesn't mean you don't take care of things like that, but you don't have your security in it. Just kind of like the political side. We vote, and we care about what we vote about, but we don't freak out that somebody is going to get in the, 
in a job that isn't the right person. Christians are liberated from that kind of stuff. And he says to this early church, right, if you're mindful of God, if it's for God's sake the reason why you work, it's enough. It's big enough to drive you through all the suffering and the, and the crooked, uh, demented ways of a, of a bad employer. Our motivation is this. We live our lives focused with an audience of one. Now, we have to remind ourselves that all the time because we forget. But the reality is if we please God, we're good to go. Every day, any day. So, let's move on. Verse 20. Just a little side note here. The beginning of it says, for what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it and endure it? Let me just make a note here because I think we're in a crisis in our country. Consequences for poor performance are not the suffering Peter is talking about. Those are normal. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you are showing up late and leaving early, if you're laying down on the job, if you're not working a full day for a full day's pay, if you're not, um, if you're not giving it everything you got, if you're screwing around and screwing off at your employment, you will suffer and you should suffer. That's called normal. You don't deserve a job if you're not working hard. In, in, in our world, people don't know how to work hard anymore. It doesn't seem like. And I'm going to get to this in a little bit. The gospel frees us to be the best workers on the planet. But Peter says, hey, when you're suffering and, you're, and you deserve it, just shut up. That's part of it. But and let me say this before we go on. Uh, Paul tells the church in Corinth, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So if you just had that, on your dashboard driving to work. I don't make widgets. I don't build houses. I don't sell houses. I don't work retail and I don't, I don't sell food. I don't do that. I work for God. Every day I work for the glory of God. Now you may, side effect, do these things, but they're inconsequential to the biggest issue. I serve the glory of God every day. And if you do that, if you do that, then you're not going to have to suffer for not working hard enough or working for the right reasons or whatever. But anyway... Let's go back to the subject of suffering for doing right. Verse 20. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it and you endure it, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure it. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I've had a, a few moments in my life where it was all I could do to maintain control. Um, I've had ministry opportunities or, or, or moments in my life where a pastor boss was over me and I thought he was the depiction of this crooked, bent person. Now, that sounds odd because pastors aren't supposed to be that way, right? But they can be. I had a guy who would show up in my office with a legal pad, not a little one, but one of those big ones, you know, with charges, accusations against me, like every month. And, and I would just look at him, really? Really? And uh, if you know my personality, this was God growing me. Uh, I'm pugnacious by nature. That's not, a, that's not a good thing. I fight by nature. God has transformed me, um, given me more grace, more sensitivity, more patience than I've ever had before. But that was in a time in my life where I was still learning. And, and I, I even went to the leadership of the church I was at at the time and said, get this dude off of me. Get him off of me. Something bad's going to happen. And... Uh, Here's what they said. So here's what God said. Do you get my point? They said, get along and endure it. 
so I did. Probably didn't win in my heart as much as I should. But it's one of those things where like, that's, that's it, that's the guy, that's the crooked, bent, twisted jerk of a boss who's just riding me like a pony and he won't get off and I'm working hard and this doesn't seem right. And so in my mind, there's this whole new list of what I deserve or what I don't deserve and how to make it right. Justice. And I've got a lot of creative ways to make it right. Um, but nonetheless, God deals with us in this way in verse 20 and says one thing specific that helps me, helps a guy like me, and I'm sure it helps us too. If, in fact, if you look at verse 19 and 20 together, they almost sound similar. They use, they use words like it's a gracious thing to endure and the suffering parts of that. But I, I want to draw the differences so it's really clear. In, in verse 19, he says why you do it is for God's sake. We've already talked about this, but it's because it pleases God. It looks like him. It, it, it is the heart of Christ, the suffering servant, to endure well suffering, things that you don't deserve. Verse 20 takes a little bit of a twist at the end. That last little phrase in verse 20, in the sight of God. See, there's, there's confidence knowing that God sees this stuff. God keeps great records of things like this, of wrongs. There's comfort in knowing that no one ever will get away with injustice, ever. Let me read to you a passage. Uh, I read part of it to you. Let me finish it in Colossians chapter 3. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, yes, for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, for there is no partiality. Christian, are you okay with God keeping the books? Are you okay with him keeping like really copious notes on injustice? Are you okay with in glory him dealing with that? Because that's Peter's point to a suffering church. You can't make it right, nor, nor, nor will you survive it if you try to fight your way out of it. But if you endure well with respect for the Lord's sake, Suffering, unjust suffering from a crooked boss. God keeps records of that stuff. And by the way, notice the like, third word in my text here, for the credit, what, for what credit is it? That word credit really means glory. No, notice that there is, there is something to our account that's added if we do it well. Peter says there's no credit if you suffer for what you deserve, but if you suffer well, there is credit. Um, Glory means transformation. Glory means um, the work that God's, God's endurance produces in you. I found, a, I found a little quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon has been called the prince of preachers. He existed in the 1800s, lived for about 59, 60 years. Um, when I read this, I cried because of the way he put it. Because if you, if you have suffered, and if you've, if you've suffered injustice, sometimes you wonder, how could this be good, and what can it produce? Like, what is the point? God, I don't understand. I don't understand why I have to endure. I can't see any possible good or outcome to this. Spurgeon writes this. A sense of injustice stings a man. He does not like to lose his rights or to be buffeted when he has done no ill, but the Spirit of Christ teaches us to endure grief, suffering wrongfully, to bear still and still to bear. We are to be like the anvil. Let others strike us if they will, but we, we will wear out their hammers if we only know how to stand still and bear up 
under all that's put on us. It may be hard to bear, but in that very hardness lies the fragrance of it. Now listen carefully. In that hardness lies much of the fragrance of it towards God. As spices must be crushed, so must you be pressed and crushed to bring out your sweetness. See my point? That somehow it's only in the kingdom of God. Somehow he can take suffering and trials and pain and in the pressing down on our lives did not becoming undone about the pressing down on our lives, there is a fragrant aroma to God. God looks at suffering Christians and he digs it. He loves it. It brings him glory. He is satisfied by it because it looks precisely like his expression to man through the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see? It's a wonderful thing to do that. Let me finish. Peter continues, verse 21. And this is the part you wish wasn't in here, but it is, so let me read it. For to you, to this you have been called. (laughs) Did you know, church, that you got a calling? Like a lot of people are always talking about, well, God called me to do this, or God called me to serve there, or God called me to give this. Well, this is a calling that's an absolute certainty for all believers, and you don't even have to ask. You're called to suffer. You're, you're called to suffer. Let me just overwhelm you with some verses. Chapter 3 of First Peter, verse 9. Here's what it says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those to, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In verse uh, 17, same chapter. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. In chapter 4, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator. In Acts chapter 14, the disciples were instructing the other disciples, the followers of Christ, that they were strengthening their souls of those people, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. James 1, you know this. Counter to all joy, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance. God takes garbage like pain and suffering and he does a glorious, beautiful, fragrant thing. And so Peter says, hey, there's credit, there's glory. God gets glory in this, in this process. And just be aware of this. Peter goes on and talks about Christ being our teacher and our example. Verses 21 through 24. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his, in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome that, that we get to follow the teacher in this? We get to look like him? So let me do the math for you. He suffered. We suffer. He didn't think about his rights, and we don't think about our rights. He left justice up to God. We leave justice up to God. He endured church. We endure. You get it? He's the teacher. And one last thing, that that phrase, by his wounds we have been healed, I love the kind of the 
parentheses behind verse 20 and, and this verse 24. Verse 20 talks about uh, it, it's of no credit to you to be beaten for doing something that was unjust. But clearly these employees were being beaten for things that were just. The word beaten means strike with a fist. I think you start with the reality that in that culture they actually suffered physical ramifications to their crooked bosses. And here down in verse 24, you have the wounds, the literal wounds of Christ that brings healing and freedom to the church. So here's the freedom church, ready? Instead of being in a situation you feel is unjust, the wounds of Christ has freed you now to not seek vengeance. You have to sue him. You don't have to quit. You can endure. The wounds of Christ have now freed you not to be bitter and to be resentful. The wounds of Christ have now put you in a position where you can forgive even your enemy. Do you get my point? Christ, life and death and resurrection, his beatings as a suffering servant on behalf of us, his church, has now liberated us from all the things that everybody would naturally do apart from Christ. This isn't fair. This isn't right. You're going to pay. And, and that's, that's liberty. That's, that's true liberty. We can now live in the more real reality of the kingdom of God than the one we can put our hands on and see and feel and touch. Let me finish with a couple of so what's. Okay, and these I think are, well, whatever. They're, they're mine, and I believe God gave them to me. But Christians should outwork the world because our drive is supernatural. Like, not, I, you do it for the kingdom of God Christians should be the best employees, the best employers. We should be the hardest workers, the first to come, the last to leave. We should be the example of what Christ has provided in us. If the, if the, if the surveys say there's real no legitimate difference between Christians and non-Christians, is it possible that one of the ways they see that is the fact that we, we work like they do? We lay down on the job like they do? The boss is unfair to us, so we take a couple moments around the block and take more time, make, make him pay for it in other ways. I think, I think we have to understand something, that a supernatural driven work ethic is what Christ has provided for Christians. And you will suffer for it. <laughs> you know the movie Rudy? The football movie? So it's about a kid who dreams his whole life about going to Notre Dame to play football. He never quite makes the team until the very end of the movie, but he's in the, he's in the practice team. And he's absolutely killing himself on the practice team. Working harder. He's a little guy, but he's given everything he's got. And there was a scene in the, in the trainer's room. He's getting taped up and iced up. And one of the guys comes in and says to him, why don't you dial it down a notch? You're making us all look bad. <laughs> Do you remember that scene? Christians should work so hard that honest, pure, open-handed, for the glory of God kind of work puts that kind of conviction on the world. You guys aren't happy, you're not smiling, you don't look like you like this. <laughs> There's freedom in this, folks. God cares deeply about that. I've already said it several times, but let me just repeat it. Trust God with your rights. Don't fight for them. Trust God with them. And then lastly, enjoy the privilege of following your leader. It, we're being called to follow him. The Bible says it's, it's a glory to follow the suffering servant. Paul tells the church in Philippi, in chapter 3, indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is driven. I just want to be like Jesus. I just want to, I want to share in Jesus. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to share in his persecution. I want to share in it. So church, if we go out and live like Jesus is our Lord and King, the world will notice. The world will like it. And when they push back on you, submit with all respect. Great joy and credit comes to you with, when we do that. Do you agree? We got to pray for help, right? Let's do it. There isn't any part of this God that we think is, or no, is natural. It's not. These are things that you, through your Holy Spirit, transforming people unto salvation and then transforming them over time, you do that. So God, we look at, look at submission to crooked, bent, jerk employers, and we know that we can look like Jesus when we respect and submit God, help us to live for something more than money. Help us to live for more than something than, than just provision or jobs that we love. God, help us wake up every day putting our feet on the floor saying, to this day, we will live for your glory. God, with your spirit's help, we will. Amen.